Good morning, Grand Church. Let me, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, wish you a blessed, blessed Christmas. And um, the office this week is pretty much closed. I'm available Tuesday afternoon if somebody would, would want to meet. And I invite you to take your Bible or the Bible you find in the chair in front of you. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, please. Several years ago, Nancy gave me a book called Mrs. Murphy's Laws. You know Mr. Murphy's Law? If anything will, a can go wrong, it will. And um, Mrs. Murphy adds the principle, and it's usually a man's fault. So here's Mrs. Murphy's Christmas Laws. And could I have just a little more volume on this? Thank you. So... um, If anything can go wrong, it will, and it's a man's fault. The person you took off your Christmas card list this year will send you one. The longer you spend wrapping a present, the faster it will be ripped apart by the recipients. People who have their Christmas shopping done by the 4th of July have way too much time on their hands. Here is Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 as we consider this morning the subject God's message to the earth long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Many of you my age and older remember 55 years ago tonight, Christmas Eve, 1968, in which a message from Scripture was heard from space. It was three Apollo astronauts who read from Genesis 1 in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Some of you remember that? A few, okay. And um, the story behind it, as revealed by an author named Jack Canfield, was that several months before the mission to circle the moon on Christmas Eve, 1968. One of the astronauts was in a meeting in his church, and um, he was scheduled to read the Christmas Eve service scripture. And uh, he said, I I can't do it. And uh, some of the other NASA employees kind of ribbed him and said, why, what's your excuse? He said, "Uh, I'm going to be out of town They said, gosh, some people will take a lot of effort to not have to read Scripture uh, publicly in in a service. But then they suggested that the astronauts read Scripture from the moon. And uh, there were complications in taking a Bible off and wrapping it uh, uh, in in special material so it wouldn't be flammable. And, And so in the first trip to circle the moon, the scriptures from Genesis 1 and 2 were actually incorporated right into the computer and in the programming of 
that Nassau space flight. This is uh, the time at which the famous Earthrise picture, some of you have seen, was snapped by, by one of the uh, astronauts. Uh, there was a reunion at the White House, the 50th reunion a few years ago with these men. But now, let me read to you the passage that we just read from a slightly different version. Long ago, God spoke in many different ways to our fathers through the prophets. How did he do this in the Old Testament? In visions, in dreams, and even face-to-face, telling them little by little about his plans. So we read in Genesis a little bit about the seed of the woman would destroy the serpent and bring redemption. We read more in the law of God that Messiah would be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And gradually we come to the Gospels recording Emmanuel, God with us. And God has given us what we call progressive revelation in that the more scripture we have, the more we understand about his plan of redemption. Hebrews goes on, but now, in these last days, and according to the Bible, it's been the last days ever since the ascension of Jesus Christ. In these days, he has spoken to us through his Son, through whom he has given, uh, to whom he has given everything, and through whom he made the world and everything there is. That's why the author of Hebrews would write under the Holy Spirit's inspiration later on, by faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God, so that that which now exists did not previously exist. All made by him and for him, God's Son shines out with God's glory. And all that God's Son is and does marks him as God. He regulates the universe by the mighty power of his command. He is the one who died to cleanse us and clear our record of all sin and then sat down in the highest honor beside the great God of heaven. There is in uh, the state of New Mexico what's called the VLR, the very large ear. Pilots call it the mushroom patch. It is a series of satellite disks on 38 miles of connecting railways in New Mexico. Here's a picture of it. At taxpayer expense of billions of dollars, it has for years been there to hear if there is a message from space. Has anyone ever spoken to us from beyond planet Earth? But the total of radio waves ever recorded barely equals the force of a single snowflake hitting the ground. Isn't that amazing? And so one Bible scholar said, what great lengths people will go to searching for a faint message from space when God has spoken so clearly through his Son and through the Word. So let's, let's talk this morning, this Christmas Eve, what is it that God has spoken so clearly to us about? Well, the passage in Hebrew says that he has made 
purification for our sin. And uh, though not the most popular of subjects, the reality is our sin is what necessitated our Savior coming. God gave us the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, to tell us to worship only Him, and that our attitudes must be right in heart and in action. In fact, we're commanded that we must be perfect or pure as our Father in Heaven is, and yet we've failed. Why is that? Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all because all have sinned. And you know the passage. You memorized it if you were in Awana. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ did numerous miracles that we love to recall when he was here on the earth as uh, he healed the sick and uh, he gave hearing to the deaf. But let me suggest to you that every miracle and in every healing of the Lord Jesus, there is a picture of salvation. There is a need that the needy person couldn't need, meet. But there's a Savior that comes along and does the supernatural. It's probably, if we really knew what it was like, one of the most distasteful pictures to us, it's that of leprosy. Now, modern medicine and nutrition has pretty much taken care of that in the developed world. But in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ and before, leprosy was a death sentence. To see that spot was to know that eventually the nerve cells would deteriorate, that the skin would decompose, that sensitivity would be gone, and death would be the result. Leprosy did all that, but it also separated people so that in Jesus' day, they had passed a law that if you're a leper, you had to cover up, stay 20 paces away from non-lepers, and if they approached you, you had to cry out, unclean, unclean, I'm a leper. I am unclean. And of all things, Jesus comes and loves on those with leprosy. He touches and heals and gives encouragement to those who were no longer feeling, who were separated from others, who were destined to die. It is a picture of what Christ did when he came into the world to give to us fellowship. This is the message that God is light. And if we walk in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin, 1 John 1, 5. And so the healing of leprosy becomes to us a great reminder of the seriousness of sin separating and leading to death, but the sufficiency of a Savior. Christ took the blind and they, he healed them. One man who'd been blind for decades. He was publicly known since his youth by the temple, blind beggar. And uh, Christ restores sight. So much so that later on, they said, who is this man? And the scripture pictures us 
in sin without Christ as being blind, not able to see. It is the spiritual person who understands the things of God because they're spiritually seen, 1 Corinthians 2. Ultimately, one of the pictures of our sin is uh, death. So Jesus, early in his ministry, healed a young lady who had died. Later on, his friend Lazarus passes away. He's dead now for several days. And Christ says, he who believes in me shall never really die. And on the occasion of Lazarus raising, he says, do you believe this? Lazarus, come forth. And he who would experience the curse of sin, death, came to life. In every case, it's a picture of a Savior who loves and who gives to us what we cannot get on our own. Blind people look forward, I would think, to the day if they're redeemed in heaven when they shall see as never before. And one of the great Christmas promises is that, that the people that sat in darkness have seen a great light. How dark this world can be in its misunderstanding of our Lord and of its selfishness. When Christ came, he reminded us that long ago the prophets had spoken to us, but in these days he himself spoke to us and part about our greatest of problems, and that would be our sin. But of course, Christ speaks to us clearly about the solution, that is, his salvation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so many people know what's been called the most loved verse in the Bible. For God, the greatest giver, so loved the greatest love. The world, the greatest group, that he gave his only begotten son, the greatest gift that whosoever believeth on him, the greatest invitation, should not perish, but have everlasting life, the greatest promise. See how consistent through the pages of the Bible God has been that we can come to him to have our sin dealt with, but we come in faith, recognizing our guilt and his provision. See just outside the Garden of Eden, the first baby boys born of Adam and Eve. Cain brings the work of his own hands, representing self-righteousness. But Hebrews tells us that Abel came in an attitude of faith with a blood sacrifice, and even today, it, at the end of 2023, he speaks to us about righteousness and forgiveness through faith in Christ. Look at Abraham, this man taking his probably teenage son, Isaac, up a mountain called Moriah, which later on would be called Jerusalem. And uh, his son says, Daddy, we, we have a fire pot here. We have fire. We have the sword. But if we're going to offer a sacrifice, where is the sacrifice? I can see Abraham trembling 
as an old man, but a man of faith, saying, my son, God himself will provide a sacrifice. Now there's good theology, that we love him because he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfactory atonement for our sins. And then they look and there's a ram caught in a thicket that that would become the picture of the sacrifice. So thousands of years of Israeli history, rams and uh, bulls, and for poor people, uh, uh, pigeons, sacrificed to, to show that something innocent dies for someone guilty. It all culminates at the 30th year of our Lord's life when he goes to the River Jordan to demonstrate obedience to us, his followers, to be baptized by John the baptizer. And John says, look, look, behold, look right there. There is the Lamb of God who not just temporarily covers up, but who takes away the sin of the world. Why did Christ come into this world? Why born in a barn to die on a cross? Because, he said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, I'm going to ask you to uh, lean forward and pull one of the little booklets out of the chairs that's right in front of you. Most of you probably have one or more little creator or liar booklets, and we've gone through it before. I like it because it's all Bible, and in five minutes it summarizes the Scripture. But this Christmas Eve morning, I'm just going to ask that if you turn right in the middle of the booklet, that actually is where the staple is, on page 12, here we have the virgin birth. When this holy baby was born, he was named Jesus, which means Savior. He was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. A little bit about the life of the Lord Jesus. He grew up and was without sin. He taught men to love each other, and he healed the sick. And, of course, he taught the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. He was challenged and crucified as a threat to the established religious and political order, but no one could find fault or sin in him. His was the only perfect life ever lived. Let's just look at one more page. Next page, 14. Why did Christ come to teach to love, to set an example, but primarily to die and to rise again. Page 14 says, being perfect, Jesus was not subject to death, the penalty for sin, but he volunteered in man's place and took man's penalty, death and separation from God. He became our Savior through his righteousness, deposited in an overdrawn account, when we are restored to fellowship with God, when we accept Christ as master of our lives. Well, there's the simply little illustrated booklet that from beginning to end tells the whole Bible story and why Christ came. 
Christ came clearly to speak to us about the need to destroy sin. He said, I, I've come to destroy the work of the evil one. He came clearly to speak to us about the ultimate Christmas present himself and the free gift of God, eternal life in Christ. And, and then I just wanted us to look at some other verses real quickly. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Jesus said, the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and may have it to the full. Now, I want you to notice that one of the deceptive works of the enemy of all that's good and godly, Satan, the old ancient dragon, the one called the deceiver, he masquerades sometimes as an angel of light. Here's 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, For Satan himself masquerades. He pretends as an angel of light. Now, this is the season of angels. You hardly go anywhere in believing homes or unbelieving homes except that, you talk, that people talk about angels and have cards with angels on them. And we put them on our, our Christmas tree. And the truth is, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who are the children of God? Hebrews says about good angels. But the Bible says about fallen angels, we often call them demons, as those who are deceivers. They may come with a false message of peace. Peace, peace, all is peace when it's not. I read the accounts of people who are not believers but who have had near-death experiences and they die and, and then they're brought back to life. This is a, a medical reality at times. And yet you would hope that not having this gift of Christ to cover their sins, they would say, I'm not ready. I need the Redeemer. What I'm headed for is hell, not heaven. But so often we read the accounts in uh, the famous books of the fact that they are greeted by an angel that appears as an angel of light who says, all is well, don't be afraid. For the Christian, all is well, we should fear not, but for those that have not received the gift, the deception of the spirit world is very real. Now, I, I want to address at this point the whole issue of is it right to celebrate Christmas? There are people in various denominations and various groups that say such an experience is heathen. It's a, it's a holiday, not a holy day. And I would say, yeah, we don't put our stock in the traditions that so many things that we think represent Christmas. We guesstimate the time of Jesus' birth being around December because that would be winter time in Israel when the shepherds would be keeping watch over their flocks by night. But we don't, we don't know that it was three kings from Orient are. They just brought three gifts. We don't know the exact time, etc. But I'm going to suggest to you that it is right, it is not wrong, for Christians to celebrate Christmas. You see, God wants us to remember significant events, and certainly this 
the most significant event. When God came through the land and said, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass over you in judgment. He said, and every year, I want you to keep a reminder of this Passover event, that believing in the blood provided by Messiah will provide relief from judgment. When they camped for 40 days in uh, the wilderness and uh, God fed them pizza and Mountain Dew or whatever and provided for them, he said, now after this, I want you to have what's called Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Tents in which every year I want my Hebrew people to do a little camping trip. And uh, I want you to remember what God has done. Imagine that. They would turn off cable TV that week. No internet surfing. And they'd be in a tent for a week doing what? Playing games, singing scripture, talking with one another. Imagine that. It was part of what God intended for our good, that yearly there be a remembrance of that. In the book of Joshua, there were 12 significant victories and high points, and, and God had them st set up stone, stones of remembrance, memorials along the River Jordan. So that he said, someday when your grandchildren says, Grandma, Grandpa, what do these stones mean? You can say, ah, oh, God brought us out with a strong hand and parted the Red Sea. When we came to this river, the Jordan River, he parted and he provided for us. Every month here at Grand Community Church, we observe what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. We call it a memorial because it's intended to remind us of the ultimate event of human history. Christ died for our sins and rose again for our justification. You see, the Bible explains that, that we should not be caught up in uh, commercialism or, or just simply tradition. But that which is based on truth is something to be remembered and something to be celebrated. And so that would be my case for, for Christmas. Now you, you say, Jim, I'm aware that there's a passage in the Old Testament that um, says it's an abomination to God to cut down a tree and to decorate it and to bring it into a place of worship or your home. There actually is a passage that says that. It says, woe to those who chop down the tree. And they gather around it and they put gold and silver ornaments on it and uh, they worship. Woe to those. What it's talking about properly understood is an idol. So if you read in a newer translation or the translation we have here, it says woe to those who would go into the woods to chop down a tree to make an idol, to adorn it and to worship it. Ah, very wrong. But I, I take some comfort in the reality that the strong tradition behind a Christmas tree, an evergreen, 
was a man that God used to change human history 500 years ago. His name was Martin Luther. He lived by the motto, the just shall live by faith. And uh, he said the church doesn't tell us what to believe. The priest or the clergy member doesn't tell us what to believe. Tradition has no power in itself to take away our sins. But in these last days, when Christ made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Redemption having been accomplished. So, trustworthy tradition tells us it was Martin Luther who himself chopped down a tree, brought it into the church. He said, it's an evergreen church. Uh, not evergreen, that's a good name for a church. But evergreen tree because it represents everlasting life. And then Dr. Pastor Luther took candles and put them on the tree to remind us that Christ himself is the light of the world. And in him, there is no darkness. Is it right to celebrate Christmas? Ah, for the right reasons. To go back and repeat the often repeated phrase, to keep Christ in Christmas. In many ways, Hebrews 1 says, God spoke to our previous generations through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he made the world. And after he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. We can rejoice that it's nothing that we can do or have to do to earn our salvation, but that the first Christmas present, God himself in human form, born in a barn to die on a cross, is the all-sufficient present that we receive to receive eternal life. And I wonder this Christmas Eve if indeed you have received that gift and if you would make him the priority. I um, often, you hear me quoting um, C.S. Lewis and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and one of the, the sad reality statements is when the white witch rules, She's the Satan figure. It is always winter, but never Christmas. Ah, but then when Aslan, the Redeemer, comes, all is well. Every year in years past, before I had knees and back problems, Nancy and I would go to Traverse City around this time of year, and hopefully there was snow so that we could cross country, some trails called the Vassar Trails. And one time we went up and it rained the night before, but then it got very cold and froze. And then it snowed, so that everything was just crystals and snow glistening. It, it, when, the snow, when the sun came out that next day, it was brilliant. Nancy and I are trugging along and... Uh, 
some college students came towards us. I stopped. I said, this looks like Narnia. One of the girls said, that is because Aslan reigns. And I tell you this morning, Aslan reigns. Amen? Let's bow our hearts together before the Lord. And before we have some very special time of singing and candle lighting, let's Let's quiet our hearts before the Lord. And Father, we ask that you would enable us to keep Christ in Christmas. To understand why you came for sin. To understand why you came for salvation. To celebrate and honor you as we ought at Christmas time. Father, we know that this season for some is a, is a time of grief. They've lost loved ones. They're hurting in various ways. Would you be to them the comforter? Would you use us to have open eyes to help those that are hurting? And Father, we love you because you first loved us, and we give you thanks in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.